taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Welcome aboard, everyone. We've been praying for you, praying for blessing and a, and a sense of peace in the season that this world is in. Uh, but anyway, we got to get after it. Uh, let's go ahead and welcome a man that's never uh, asked me for a quarter at the pop machine, Brian Chilton. <laughs> you know, they do say Dr. Pepper's going through some problems, and I love my Dr. Peppers. In fact, I've got one with me right now. So, so uh, I need to head on up to Montana to give you a quarter. How about that? <laughs> That's good stuff. I always try to come up with something goofy. <laughs> yeah, you shared, you shared with me a video I, I really loved watching. It was with uh, was it Robbie Zacharias, yeah. Zacharias and Francis Chan. That was really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, those are, some, those are some good times there. That's some powerful stuff both those guys were talking about. Oh, so. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're in the podcast number five. Um, it's it's actually number four on our on our actual um, as we start digging through it. The first one we gave a, a broad overview of everything, but uh, this is podcast number five on this series, um, and it's uh, omni benevolence. Um, and so we'll be mentioning that. We'll be to going over that, but uh, we have a few things we want to mention real quick before we get into it. And Brian, you want to go ahead? Yeah, so, so as we're talking about omnibenevolence, we're talking about uh, the all-goodness of God, which we'll go back and describe that in more detail here in just a moment. But um, I received an email, uh, or we received an email at bellatorchristie.com, and uh, uh, and I'm not, I won't go into the details because it's a, you know, some of it's sensitive information, but I, I wanted to share with you the, at least the uh, overview of our conversation and, and, uh, and the importance of why understanding God's goodness is so transformative in our lives. We received an email from an individual named Bailey, and she noted noted how the gospel had blessed her life and had really just impacted her to the point that she was in tears thinking about Christ, going to church, reading her Bible. She was just absolutely enthralled with the goodness of God. But she said, there were times that she asked "what if" questions. Uh, what if this is too good to be true? You know, what, what if what if this is just me imagining this to be true? What you know? How do I know this is true? And she said she realized that a lot of this came down to emotional doubt, where she had been hurt in life by a particular individual, and or or individuals, and thought that uh, God's goodness was just a little too good to be true, but. In our conversation, I reminded her that uh, we were talking about emotional doubt, which is a powerful version of doubt. And I dare say most of the doubt out there, I think Dr. Gary Habermas said something that he estimated, which I, I, was, I put in the book, Layman's Manual of Christian Apologetics. He said he estimated that around 70 to 80% of doubt was emotional doubt. Something bad has happened to them, or maybe they've experienced some tragedy in life, and they think that, and they question God's goodness. 
Well, and, but I reminded her in our conversation that we we don't need we need to understand that what ifs are not what ours. There's a difference because we can what if ourselves to death, and you know it, it, a lot of times people will ask what if questions when making a decision, and we keep doing this what if this what if that. But if there's something we have good reasons for believing in, like Christianity, like we have excellent reasons for believing that Christ rose from the dead, we have superb reasons for believing that God exists. Um, we have good reasons for believing that the Bible is the Word of God. So if we have this information. And, and logically, we, we see that there are reasons for holding these claims, then we have to understand the what-ifs cannot overcome the what-ars. And furthermore, I think we, have to, we, we must never put a question mark where God places a period. Yeah. So, so if God exists, if Christ is risen from the dead, if the gospel is true, and we have a relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit then when Jesus says we are forgiven, no one else can say otherwise. That's why the Bible says that God can't swear by a name higher than his own because there's not a name higher than his own. Right. right. So so we can't put a question mark where God puts a period. So that's one of the things that's helped me overcome emotional doubt is the realization that God is the ultimate good. And this is what I told her. I said, you know, the, the bad things we experience and the bad people we encounter in life, we have to understand they are not exemplary of who God is because God is good. Sometimes we may... I, I had two wonderful parents, and I thank the Lord for my mom and dad, Dennis and Gail. Um, but the thing is that a lot of people had bad um, parents, or for whatever reason, maybe one or both of the parents weren't... Uh, weren't very good for whatever reason, what wasn't good to them. And so they equate God with the parent, but we have to understand that God is far different than a parent. Even the best person we can imagine, when we think of good, even the best person imaginable doesn't even come close to the goodness that we find in God. So there's a distinction that has to be made there as well. Yeah, yeah. And also, as we're talking about difficulties, I, I, I wanted to say just, just a brief word about, um, and I want to ask everyone to pray for my, my university, which is Liberty University. It is going through a firestorm of epic proportions. Uh, even as we are recording this podcast, um, the news came out earlier this week that Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, had participated, he and his wife had participated in sexual uh, practices that were far, not only something that a university, Christian university president should have done, should not have done, but something that no Christian should have done. But I, I want to pray, I want to ask people to pray for the university, that it would, would follow God's guidance and be the place that he's called it to be, a place that will train champions for Christ. But I also want to call prayer, and this may sound weird and bizarre, but I want to ask people to pray for Falwell and his family. Here, here, here's the reason. If he's a believer, if he's a genuine believer, we need to pray that God would straighten out his life because obviously he and his he and his wife have some issues they need to work through big time. But if they're not believers, we need to pray for them even more uh, to, to pray that God would straighten out their lives and, and 
that they would know the love and compassion that they've heard so much about at, at the campus through the convocations. So, again, pray for the university. Pray for the family um, that, um, you know, God, that God will do something great in, in the midst of this horrible, horrible tragedy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And let me just say one last thing, well, something I meant to say and I failed to. There, Farwell had, against what I wished he had done, and this is something like what we were talking about, I wished, I wished that he would focus more on Christ than politics, but that's not the case. But anyhow, um, there are some people who despised him before this happened. What I would say to people is we as believers should never relish in someone's fall. We should never rejoice in something like that happen, whether you like the person or not, because we have to be careful, because the Bible tells us take great care, because any and all of us could fall at any moment. So I think that we as believers, we need to pray for one another. We need to build one another up in the faith and just pray God's protection over us because I tell you, just as you said, Curtis, the devil is working overtime and he is attacking God's people. He's attacking God's places uh, and we, we need to be, we need to put on the armor of God. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and then it's a, it's a black eye for sure for it, but um, I think out of it, you know, God's going to bring it to his glory that, that, uh, that the university's uh, meant to be. And absolutely. And I know we'll talk about this as we go through the podcast a little more detail, but a lot of times to bring healing, a lot of times to bring correction, God's light has to expose certain things. That's what we learn about in the, in the first chapter of John's Gospel, um, that you know people love darkness rather than light because they, they feared that their deeds would be exposed. Well, child of God, they they realize that God's light shining on these things to expose them and to remove them to make the child of God better in the end. So, uh, I, I think you're right. I think the best days for the university will be ahead because of this. If if the leadership will listen to the Spirit of God and will will allow God to mold and make the place to to what He. Um, he, he desires it to be. And let me just say, I, I'm not by any means saying that the university hasn't done great things because the university has blessed me numerously, uh, in, immensely, and, and the university stands upon the principles training champions on Christ, for Christ. But the problems they've had in the upper, with with certain issues need to be corrected. And, and I think that uh, I, I'm excited when I hear uh, about what I hear is going on, and I think that change is coming. And I'm right. very excited about that. Right, and we got to be careful um, that we don't let the cancel culture of the of the of the secular world creep into the church and creep into this because um, you know you got uh, professors and the and the, you know even the staff, a lot of the staff, um, the students, uh, the student body, the alumni. Um, you know they're they're solid people and and on fire for God. Absolutely. Yeah. As we were so. talking about before the podcast, you know, unfortunately, the university has been cast in a negative light. But I can tell you stories about how people at that university have blessed me. Curtis, whenever I was applying for the Ph.D. program, didn't know if I was going to get in or not. 
I was talking to one. It was a lady. I was talking to one of the the uh, the advisors, academic advisors, and she asked me if I had any needs in my life that she needed to pray for. And I told her, I said, you know, my grandmother at that time she had Alzheimer's and she was about to pass. And she said, I I told her I said I could really use a lot of prayer. Do you know that lady? And I don't know who she is. Still to this day, don't. She burst in tears. And we prayed, I bet we prayed for about 10 minutes on the phone. Uh That's Liberty University. Uh That's what makes that university so powerful. That's what makes that university so good. That's why in previous podcasts I've aired uh, commercials for Liberty University because that's the Liberty University I've experienced. Right. And that's what I want to let people know. That is what makes the university so great. Right. Yep, and and so we'll just uh, keep Liberty and and the staff and and the professors, the student body. We'll keep them in our prayers, and we'll just uh, watch God's hand move across this. Amen. So, so let's get into it. Uh, what is omnibenevolence? Well, here again, omni word. Uh, talk about all uh, benevolence means uh, goodness. So omnibenevolence is a necessary trait of God's perfection and goodness, is good moral nature. Uh, God's omnibenevolence indicates that God has a is the ultimate love. Uh, he, he is uh, love personified, really. In fact, the only way we can even know what love is is if we know God because God reveals to us what love actually is. Now, love can be misconstrued into things that it's not. For instance, in the Greek language, there are four words for the word love. There's the word agape, and there's the word storge, there's the word phileo, and there's the word eros. Agape means unconditional love of choice. And that's the word associated most uh, directly with God. Now, phileo can be, you know, phileo is identified with uh, God some too. But but agape is is a love of choice. Phileo is a brotherly love that, that people have with one another. Storge is a familial type of love that people have in their families. Eros is a sexual form of love. Uh, it's a love of passion. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, but it's a love of passion. We get our word erotic from this word. Unfortunately, a lot of times people have associated genuine love with eros rather than agape. Well, uh, again, we know what love is because we if we know God, we know what genuine authentic love is all about. And this is what I tell married couples all the time or people interested in, in my services and marrying them. A lot of people turn me away because I do require counseling and then working through a workbook. Uh, before I marry them. But uh, I tell every couple, if you're going to make your marriage work, it takes three people. It takes the man, it takes the woman, and it takes God. If you don't have God, there's no guarantee it's going to work because if you don't know God, you don't know what love is, quite frankly. Right. Very true. Yep. Had to work through that with uh, with some people that I had. To, I got married. I married there a couple years ago. So we had some counseling sessions and talked about that for sure. Amen. So does the Bible speak of omnibenevolence of God? Yeah, we have several passages here as well. And I guess as we've done in the past, if you want, we'll just uh, flip-flop back sure. and forth. Uh, I like the first this first one. We were talking about yeah. this before the podcast. First John 1 John 1.5 
and says, uh, uh, and, I, and I may read, go ahead and read verse, uh, well, I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. It says, uh, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. Now, let me just preface this by saying I think there's a literal and a symbolic form to this message. I think God's manifestation when you see God, that he is the brightest light you will ever encounter. I think because God is just just pure energy, pure personality, pure being. Okay, so, so he exudes light. So, but I think it's also metaphorical because when he talks about God's light, he's talking about ultimate goodness. So God is light, ultimate goodness, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Yeah. Yeesh. Yeah, and then you got uh, <laughs> Psalm 105, um, 100, verse 5. Uh, for, the, for the Lord is good and is faithful, and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. James one seventeen says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now notice again that allusion to light. Who does not change like shifting shadows. And boy, I'll tell you what, as much as things change in the world, it's good to know that God doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, he's a solid. Amen. He doesn't move. Mm. That's what's powerful. So in, in a way, I kind of look at this as, this isn't just a, uh, um, a a love of like well you do okay for me and then I'll still love you you know no no he's he this is this is God's purpose he set his purpose on us to love to love us and, and you know you bring out a great point there Curtis because really what can we give God that he doesn't already have yeah I mean yeah he don't need us he I mean, he doesn't have to have us he doesn't he didn't have to create us. And I know that's very difficult for us to, to accept, but that's true. He didn't have yeah. to create us. Right. So it's purely given his, his love to us, even though we have nothing to give in return. That's powerful. Yeah. And this is one of my favorites right here. It says, uh, it's Mark 10, uh, verse 18. It says, Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. And this is when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher. You know, um, you know, what do I have to do? And Jesus whips around, well, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And so right there he was declaring not only his goodness, but, but also that he's saying, hey, no one is good but God. But in that he's declaring that he's God. Yeah, and there's also a theological test he's given the... Uh the rich young ruler there, he's saying, are, are you saying by calling me good, are you identifying me as being God come in flesh? Right. Or, yep. you know, what are you saying here? So he's putting the rich young ruler to the test. And so obviously, you know, the rich young ruler unfortunately walks away in the end. But, uh, right. Uh. Matthew 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And, you know, we, we know God is perfect. And many people have said that this word, uh, represents uh, uh, maturity, 
but uh, no matter how you interpret that or dissect that, we know that we're in a process being sanctified, made in, made into perfection. We're being made into perfection, and eventually we will, once, uh, especially once we enter into eternity. Right. Romans 11, uh, verses 33 through 36. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments and untraceable his ways. That's powerful right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 35. Yeah, does, God, does ever, God need a counselor? I love that right. verse. I mean, who can right. counsel God? <laughs> right, yeah, who can counsel God? Who knows the mind of God? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that one right there is just such a rhetorical question. It it just it's amazing. And uh, thirty five, and he who has ever given to God that he should be repaid. Thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory, forever. Amen. Amen. Mm. Someone. 45 verse 9 15 and 16 uh, verse 9 says the lord is good to everyone now here here, here and we're going to mention this as we go along this is one of the reasons why i'm not a calvinist we'll talk about this a little bit more because i do believe that god has a love for everyone that doesn't mean that everyone is in a covenant relationship with god and i'm certainly not a universalist but I do think that uh, that God does have a love for everyone. So the Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. Uh, verse 15 says, uh, ah, let me read verse 14. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. So people who fall, there, there is a chance if they listen to the Lord that they, you know, that they can be redeemed, they can, they, that the Lord will, will, will help them work through the issues of their lives. All eyes, in verse 15, look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So God has a goodness, a love towards all of his creatures, big and small. Uh-huh. And, that's what, and that's what in some ways draws, draws, uh, draws us in. Um, is, is when we recognize the loss of love in our life and we see that love being given freely by God, which then turns our hearts and minds and eyes to Him. Amen, that's good. That's good stuff. Yeah, powerful. Uh, Matthew five forty-five, verse 45, So that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, or the just and the unjust. Mm. Romans 5, 8, But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that's just a powerful verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. And everybody should be able to recite this one. <laughs> John, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Amen. John four thirty four says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus yeah, told buddy. me. So the, the, the focus there is that God had sent Jesus on a good mission to, to reach people, to bless people, and uh, to bring about God's plan in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
John 6, 47. Verse 47, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. And that anyone I believe means anyone. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I understand um, some of the other concepts, but I, I look at that and it's anyone, anyone who turns their eye to God that turns and realizes, wait a minute, I feel that love back there. I feel, feel what I feel what I need and then turns around and Jesus is right there. Yeah. You know, the, the moment you turn around, he's right there. That's love. Yeah, and, and the whole time, you know, just as a clarification, the whole time God is calling that person to himself. And so mm-hmm. it's, it, there's a responsiveness that's there, however you yeah. dissect that. But anyone who believes, anyone who responds to the love of God uh, will, cert- will certainly find it. First John 3.16 says, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us just the, the the sacrifice of Christ, we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So mm-hmm. uh, sacrificial love is what he's talking about. Yeah. It's that outer working. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Mm-hmm. So God transformed us from being enemies to being friends of God. Right. And there's there's a theologian I heard uh, who who talks about how uh, I can't remember who it was. I, it's one of the irritating things. I hear some good stuff, and I can't remember who said it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but the, the the theologian was talking about how we're in a state of being, and and before Christ, we're in a state of God's wrath. But once, but once we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we're in a state of grace, of God's mm-hmm. good, loving grace and mercy. So it's a, it's a difference in a state of being, so to speak, and uh, right. powerful stuff. Right. Yeah, and I have one more here that I that I was kind of pondering on and, and just um, truly just thinking about um, as I was kind of going through some of this. And in First John 4, um, verse 9 through 11, um, this this really has just been one that's been kind of resonating with me you know, ever since we kind of been leading into this. It's um, verse 9. Uh, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God had sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, or beloved, either way you look at that. If God so <laughs> loved us, we also ought to love one another. Mm. And he's talking about loving one another within within Christendom, mm-hmm. within fellow believers, with our brothers and our sisters. Our pastors, mm. our leaders, we look towards that that uh, uh, are in the church. That's the love he's talking about. Mm. Good stuff. So, number four, uh, question number four: If God is omnibenevolent, why did He create Satan? But before we get into that, I want I want to go back to one one verse here in, in um, verses verses two and three, back to chapter four. 
This is uh-huh. how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. He also okay. says in verse 3, uh, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verse 15, he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Abides him and he's God. And, uh, and he goes on to say that God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. The word confess is uh, is the word homologio or homologeo. And it means it's talking about an outward confession, but is viewed as a window into the person's soul or into the person's actual beliefs. And this also used in Romans 10.10. 10. Let me look this up. That says, uh, Romans 10.10, 10, that says, uh, One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. This is after the creed that if you can believe if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now I say all of that, this homilageo is used as an outward expression of an inward manifestation going on in the heart, as a window to the person's soul. And so as God manifests himself in our lives, he transforms us so that a person and this is where the, we find the connection in John and in James and in the writings of Paul. The theology is actually the same theology, and it roots back to Jesus. It finds its root in Jesus. And Jesus was talking about good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. But what he's talking about in all of that is the transformation inwardly is going to be manifested outwardly. And so as we know God and God is love, then that love is going to be manifested uh, in and through and to the people we meet uh, on on everyday occasions. Mm-hmm. So, and when and when he's talking about um, when they're talking about the heart, what are they talking about there? Uh, that, that's a good question. Uh, the word heart is the word cardia. Uh, we we use it in the medical field. Uh, it's used in the medical field for for uh, cardiac arrests and things of this nature. It comes from the Greek word cardia. And the ancient belief of the cardia or the heart was that it was the center of a person's mind, will, and emotions. And uh-huh. as such, your decisions would be influenced by whatever was controlling, uh, whatever the focus of your life was. So your your if if your focus is on Christ and Christ, the Holy Spirit is guiding you and directing directing you, then you're going to choose to follow Him and make the decisions that conform with the loving nature and direction and guidance of the Lord. Sometimes, let's just say, let's just call a spade a spade. Christians are not always the most loving people. Amen? <laughs> Amen. And so the problem is, is I think that, uh, I think it's multifaceted. In fact, I think the reason we're going through some of the things we are right now is because God is purifying the church. To, to bring forth a, a pure cardia so that we as people of God will, be, will follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and make good ethical decisions as being instructed and influenced by the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. I think so the Spirit's flowing, brother. Yeah. Yeah, and so I was just going to say, so that gives a whole different view on the window into our inner being 
Yeah, absolutely. The inner man, it, it takes, it's uh, front and center in the teachings of Jesus. It's also front and center in many of the teachings you find in Paul and uh, John and James and John, especially, that uh, this inner man is transformed by the, the working of God in that person's life. It's right. it's a window to the soul. Jesus even says, for wherever, whatever your, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be found also. That's some powerful stuff. So um, let's get into the why did he create Satan then? You know this this is a this is a question that I've often been asked, and I don't mm-hmm. know that there's really a good answer to it. Um, a, a person could also ask why did God make angels? Uh, in fact, Hebrews one talks about you know Christ is superior to angels. Well, if God's omnipotent, why does he need even need ministering agents like that? But then you can also ask the question: Well, why did God make people? And yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's His loving, creative nature that He did so. Um, I don't think that you, we can accuse God of being the author of of evil. I think that He created Satan or, or the Satan. It's, it's Satan is actually a title. Hasatan, uh, yeah, yeah, Hasatan, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he is he is the enemy. Um, but, um, you know, I think God created him with a, with a freedom of the will, uh, to, to no good from evil, no right from wrong. Um, um, so it may be that he, cause obviously he knew Satan was going to do what he did. Uh, and so maybe it was to, to afford the freedom of choice so that people could freely, or and angels could freely love God that they had to have the freedom to be able to respond to love or reject that love, and Satan was the first one that we know of to reject that love and took a third of the angels with him. So, again, as we've spoken of in previous uh, podcasts, it may be that the um, the way love is genuinely experienced is if it's freely given and freely received. So, in order to allow this he had to allow the angels to have that freedom. And just so happened that Satan, the Satan, the Hasatanas, uh, and a third of the angels decided to reject that love. Hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, I guess part of me, part of me still asks the question then, you know, um, you know, as, as, as the, <laughs> Um, as the accuser of the brethren, as the person that that he is, the that's the seat that um, Satan fills. Um, is it just a? Is it a because of God's goodness that that people actually find the evil in their heart and turn away from God? I mean, I guess I, I'm trying to think of how I can word the question maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper. Um, but it's it's that it's that turning away from God and the hardening, like we talked last week, the hardening of the heart. Um, we turn away from God's love, and that love then actually hardens us. Yeah, and. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I understand the question completely, but I, th- I think I know where you're getting at. That 
that maybe by allowing some of these things to happen that a greater good could come out of it because sometimes uh-huh. by allowing the difficulties of life, I mean, it's like today. Today was a horrible day. It started off with a dead deer in front of the church. We had to call a DOT to come get, and it ended up with someone hacking into my email account and my school account when we had to read correct that. So, I mean, this has been pretty much a bad day, but, you know, God's goodness is, is good, uh, still remaining, you know, despite what happens. But nonetheless, um, I think these these things shape us, and I think God allows us to go through the difficulties to reform us, to make us into the people He wants us to be. Much as a uh, blacksmith puts metal in the uh, heats it up to purify it, to to get rid of the impurities mm-hmm. in the metals, I think sometimes God has to do that with us, and maybe yeah. maybe that's part of it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's a very deep question, and I don't know that I don't know that we have the complete answers to it. And, and you know, it's part of that is is uh, the wonder and the awe of God, Absolutely. and and that's part of that. Not to put a pat answer on it, but that's part of faith. That's part of knowing how God's goodness in it, um, in these things. Uh, that we know that there there has to be a purpose for that in our life. Absolutely, I mean it's it's again you know this this issue about Satan and and allowing certain things to happen, knowing the end results. I, I think that we have to put it, put it in in the lens of Romans eight twenty eight, knowing that because of God's goodness and His power and His wisdom. As we as we've mentioned some of these attributes already, when you yeah. put that together as a total package, then you can say, "Yeah, I can trust God because He has something good ultimately planned through all of this chaos." And by the way, I think I think that's true of 2020. This year has been horrible, <laughs> but yeah. it didn't catch God by surprise. Right. So God intended this year to be as it was, not that He desired things to to happen as they have. But he permitted those things to happen to bring forth a greater good, whatever that good may be. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're kind of dipping into the next question. So why did God permit or create evil? So, yeah, I've had people ask me this question before. Why did God create evil? So the first thing, I, sh- I think it has to be said that evil is not something that's created. Okay, e- evil is a byproduct of of a response. So uh, when, when we talk about the goodness of God, we're talking about the moral character of God. And so there has to be good before we know what evil is because we because good is the standard. It's the standard. So evil is a byproduct that comes about by the rebellion of humanity. So it's, it's, it's developed because of the response of people who reject God. So when people reject God, they bring about evil and they bring about chaos. If we all did things the way God commands us to, and we really, we we really loved God and we really sought the best for one another, then we wouldn't have a lot of the problems that we have now. We really wouldn't. If everyone lived like that, we really would not have the problem. Secondly, God grants people the gift of free will, as we've mentioned before. So, so. God did so to allow us to be able to experience the fullness and, and breadth and depth of God of love. Uh, so, 
I, I think that evil and things of this nature are the again the, the byproducts of, of bad things ultimately from the rebellion we have. Uh, but that's not to say that God doesn't permit these things to um, to happen in many instances so that something better in the end will happen. And sometimes we don't know what that ultimate good is. Sometimes we may not even be able to see that ultimate good or know what right. that ultimate good is. But that's where we really have to trust and depend on the nature of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so here's number six then. Um, does God love those who are unsaved and condemned? Now, I also want to add that in. Does God love, well, I guess, yeah, it is unsaved, but everybody equally. And, and, and here's another reason. Here's another reason why I am not a hardcore Calvinist. Because I have heard people, and, and please understand, I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm not being ugly or anything like this nature. But I have heard people say that God hates people who aren't saved. And they use the, the proof text of Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, that word is a comparative thing. If, for instance, the right. Bible t- tells us that a person who doesn't take care of the needs of his own family is worse than an unbeliever. The, right. the Bible is very strong in family ethics, but Jesus tells us that if we don't hate our mother and father and husbands and wives and children right. and and love Him, then we're unworthy to be children of God. Well, when He's talking That's about a, that, He's talking about the supremacy of our love towards God must would must appear. What was that now? Would appear to be yes, painful. yes, yeah. absolutely would be so great that all other loves would, would pale in comparison. So this, I think the same thing is true of, of that text. Uh, the, the Greek and Hebrew are a lot deeper than what we realize a lot of times, and so there are comparative words in that, in that sense. But if you take a look at the, on the positive side of it, when you, when you hear the messages of Jesus where he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, Samaritans were outcasts in the time of the time, right? But the Samaritan was the hero of the story. Okay, you you look at this. I mean, the teachings of Jesus are pure genius. But then you go to the Sermon on the Mount, and he says to you, he says to people, he says to believers, he says, if you only love people who love you back, what reward is is there in that? But if you want to be shown to be people of God, love those who hate you, love those who despise you. Pray for those who persecute you and and do good to those who do bad to you. That's difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that, that takes a supernatural working in a person's life to be able to do that. Um, so I think on that instance, I think that Jesus wouldn't tell us to do that if God didn't have a sense of love for all people. Right. And so there's another passage of scripture it's a little lengthy so just bear with me for a moment i think this bears uh, this is so important to this L- let me first of all read second i tell you what uh, uh curtis if if you could look up second peter 3 8 while i'm looking up ezekiel 18 and read sure. that for us
got a fan in my in my office here and keeps blowing my pages as I get in close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, second Peter three eight. Uh, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Is okay. It must be the next verse. Is it's the one that says um, it's not the will of the Lord that any the Lord perish. the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, so some people have read that and they'll say the you is talking to the people of God and not to everyone. But here's the problem I have with that: it's multifaceted. One that makes no sense. Well, if if the people have already repented are the children of God, then why would they have to repent again? <laughs> right. So so that doesn't make sense. But I also think he is referring back to Ezekiel eighteen, and I want to read this. It's 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 lengthy, but I'll try to read it as quick as I can. It's Ezekiel chapter eighteen. It says, suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or does not look to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't oppress anyone but returns the collateral to the debtors. He does not commit robbery but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. So in other words... Even though he lives in a, a bad society, look what he says in verse 9. He follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous and he will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So even though he finds himself in a wicked society because of his faith, he is uh, justified. But now he goes on to verse 10, to 10 through uh, verse 13 and he tells the story of and i'll and just summarize this because i know we're running down on time he says that uh, suppose this righteous man has a wicked violent son who kills people he does all manner of evil and he says uh, even though uh, the, the 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 man's father was a righteous man he says that uh, because of his evil deeds, verse 13, he will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will, he will certainly die. His death will be his own fault. So he is personally responsible. But he also says that the father, even though the father did all he could to raise his son right, the father's not responsible for his adult son's actions. Each person's responsible for their own. Okay, so let's let's turn the tide here in verse 14 through 17. What about this evil father who has a good son? The good son sees the sins of his father, and he doesn't uh, do the things his father does. He uh, gives to the poor. He, he trusts in God. He says such a person will not die for his father's iniquity. He will certainly live. So here's, here's there are three people here. The grandfather, who was a righteous man living in an evil society, he was justified by his own faith. the 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 grandfather had a the, had a son who um, who um, was an evil man, and that guy had a, a a son, the grandson of the grandfather, and the grandson was a good, righteous, moral person. Each person was responsible for their own sin. He said the righteousness, in verse 20, the righteousness of the righteous person will be on him and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. 
But he goes on to say in verse 21, But if the wicked person turns from the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he will certainly live, he will not die. None of, the, none of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. And now here's what the Lord God says. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? So he goes on to say um, in verse 30, Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so that you do not become a sinful stumbling block to you, or so that they don't. Throw off all your transgressions you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, the Lord God says, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God, so repent and live. So each person is responsible for his or her own actions. Each one is responsible for his or her own faith. And it's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all come to repentance, just as we find in Second Peter. So I think when you take the culmination of all the evidence from Jesus' teaching, along with Ezekiel chapter 18, 2 Peter, all together, I think we can say that God has a love for all of his creatures, just as one of the Psalms said previously. And so, yes, he has a love for everyone, but there's that covenant love, which is a special kind of love that he has with people of faith. Yeah, I was just looking here. Yep. So the Tree of Life uh, version says the same thing. Uh, it is a declaration of Adonai, so return and live. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. And it really is, and I think what that shows, and this is something we have to understand as we, as we read the entire Bible, that God is is doing the things He's doing to bring about redemption of people, because it's not God's desire to see anyone perish and go to hell. That hell was not even intended for people. It's God's desire right. for people to repent and live. Right. Yeah. Yep. And they, you know, you think about that. Um, God's with us all the way to that to the end. Absolutely. And and, and so. Yeah, powerful. So, uh, uh, number seven, if God is omnibenevolent, then why did he condone or even order the battles and conflicts that one finds in the Old Testament? Oh boy, yeah, this this one is one that could have an entire <laughs> podcast devoted to it. Uh, l- l- let me just say, uh, a good book, if, if anyone out there is stumbling with this issue, and a lot of people do, uh, Paul Copan's book, Is God a Mortal Monster, is really a good treatise on this whole issue. And it really is a good book I would highly recommend. I don't know that I agree with all of his takes on every issue, but he he does a, he does a smash-up job. It is a book that you need to get. Um, yeah. There's a distinction that has to be made between God's permitted will, the things he permits, and God's desired will, the things that he, he wants. God permits things that he does not desire due to human sin. And we see this. Jesus even talked about the whole issue of divorce. 
right. does God allow and permit divorce? Yeah. Is, is divorce the unpardonable sin? No, absolutely not. God will forgive. I mean, God forgave the woman who was divorced five times and living with a man. I mean, he, he'll, he'll forgive a person and use a person for great things. But Jesus says that the original order of the law was given not because it was God's desired will, but because of the sin that had interjected, God had to permissively allow those things to um, to take place. So it's by God's goodness that he cannot permit sinful and deviant nations to continue their practices. So imagine a world now, imagine what the world would be if World War II went the other way and Adolf Hitler got his got his will, got his desires. This this place may not even be here now as we know it. Uh, he had some very Hitler had some very evil intentions. So God may have used some of the conflicts to purify the land and to bring about a good end. And let's just call a spade a spade. So many of the civilizations that Israel combated were guilty of egregious sins and horrible practices. Oh, absolutely. Some of the cities that, that they attacked were not like just civilian towns. A lot of the cities were military outposts. Yes, they had women and kids there, most certainly, but this, these were training centers, like a military base almost. Okay, so... Um, but going back to the civilization itself, I mean, the Canaanites, they, they worship Moloch. Uh, and, and Moloch is a deity that where they used to uh, dedicate children and by burning them to Moloch at the, at the uh, Valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem. And this, this was uh, a horrible thing. In fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the one where they had... Uh, they t- took these babies and they placed it on the altar, this searing hot stone, yep. and and cooked the babies alive. And they beat these drums so loud that the parents couldn't hear the baby screaming. Yep. Horrible, horrible practices. So you have to, when you understand the evil of some of the communities, you have to say, well, you know... Uh, how did God permit them not to attack them sooner? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, but yeah, but yeah, God loves everyone, but He cannot allow sinful practices like that continue unabated. He eventually right. is going to He's going to have to purify and uh, and and um, right these wrongs so that many more people aren't harmed and killed. Right, you know, and and it's pointed out in in some some circles that, you know, uh, atheists cry out, well, why isn't God doing something to stop all this evil? And here, right here, this exact part right here that you're talking about is a point where he does stop evil, (laughs) and they're crying about it. Yeah, there's no win. There's a no-win situation, because if God doesn't do something about it, they say he doesn't care. Or if if God does something about it, then they say he's he's a mean, evil tyrant. Yeah, he's meanie. <laughs> Schoolyard bully. Yeah. 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 But but it's out of but see look at look at it's out of the love for his people that he's moving through the from the in the scriptures, he's moving this this group of people through the scriptures to to pull other 
cultures to them to point to God. He's using this this group of people, the Israelites, to to show the difference of who he is as a God versus all the false gods that all the other cultures are worshiping. That that's an excellent point, Curtis. I mean if you if you think about Elijah and the battle on in the uh, standoff of Mount Carmel, you know, people saw who the true God <laughs> yeah. was. Yeah. And and throughout the Old Testament, God didn't choose Israel because it was a mighty nation. In fact, he chose them because of their weakness, that through their weakness God's glory could be demonstrated. And uh, he he did just that. In fact, through through Abraham, I mean, the point was that all nations would come to know Yahweh as the true, genuine God, uh, right. and would be saved because of uh, of seeing these things go on and seeing God's work with them. And and ultimately, it led to Christ, who was a sacrificial atonement for for anyone who would believe. But uh, um, yeah, I, I think I think Old Testament, New Testament alike, uh, God is very evangelistic, seeking to save souls. Right. Just just real quick to think about this, think about this, um, where you're talking about on Mount Carmel, where Elijah's up there. All right. He he's he's got the altar up there, and he calls people to bring him water to pour on the altar. Right, so mm-hmm. it's and they, and the water was overflowing on the altar. Right, mm-hmm. where'd they get the water? It was a drought. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. You, you know, I mean, so so you're talking. This might be the very water that they had left. The very water oh, wow. that they had they had left for their family to be able to survive. So those that are believers on that mountain were, were, were believing in faith that God was going to do something. That is a powerful point I had not considered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I could see. Well, it's like with Abraham. I, I was uh, going through James today. And if you look at the, at the situation with Abraham, when God tells him to go up on uh, Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, the book of Hebrews tells us, and I think you can even see this in a text, or if you read it close enough, that Abraham fully expected and anticipated that God could raise his son from the dead because he so believed that God was going to be faithful to his promises and having a, a nation coming through, uh, through Isaac. So he trusted God to even do something. Listen, Christ hadn't come then. He didn't know of resurrection. Right. But he believed that God had that kind of power to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and you think about that, how, how much God had done in Abraham's life already. Mm. Um, rescued his, his nephew Lot. Um, blessed him megafold in in, uh, in the his... You could call them riches of his of his flocks and his herds. Um, just just the things that Abraham went through to to bring about this type of faith. That's it wasn't just something that uh, one day Abraham woke up off the off the ground and said, "You know what? I'm, I just got faith in God today." Mm. Powerful. Amen. Yeah. So. Uh, 
great. Um, how does the existence of the objective moral value demonstrate the existence of an omnibenevolent God? This is deep. It, it is, and here again, this this deserves another. You know, it deserves a podcast yeah. in and of itself. And this goes into the moral argument for God's existence. And, and essentially saying that, that the existence of good points to the existence of a good God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the argument, and there are many ways of constructing this, but the moral argument is generally constructed as the following three statements. Number one, if objective morals exist, God exists. Right. Two, objective morals do exist. Number three, therefore God exists. So... The way you would defend this is you would say, first of all, objective morals uh, are standards that are evident to every person and are not subject to personal opinion. And I think as you look through different societies, yes, some, some practices are different, but at the very root of it all, if you really investigate the culture deep enough, you're going to find that they have uh, similar objective standards as other cultures do. For instance, even the cannibals, the cultures that are cannibalistic, uh, they may eat other tribes, but within their own community, they have a moral code about how to treat one another that's very comparable to other cultures. Even the Nazis, as hard-hearted as they were, you know, even though they treated others horribly within their own accompaniment, there was this, this moral code. Um, to those who were near and dear to them. So I think in the root of it, you can say that all people have a sense of what's right and wrong. And that's why when people do something they're not supposed to do, they, they sense that feeling of guilt because they realize they've done something that's wrong. So I think we can say that objective morals do exist. The next thing would be to connect those objective morals to God's God's existence, and there I, w- I think you would say that uh, uh, I think you could defend that by saying just as a uh, um, for instance, if you're driving down the highway and you see a, uh, a speed limit, you know that that was set there by some legislation, uh, DOT or whatever, whoever it is that makes those those laws. So nonetheless, the existence of that law dictates or necessitates the existence of some lawmakers. Right. And so even if we don't know who the lawmakers are, we know the law dictates the necessity of some lawmaker some point in time. Right. Yeah, we, because there's a law, we know there's a lawgiver. Absolutely. So yeah. I, th- I think if you can show that there are objective morals and you show the connection to God, I think the moral argument is a powerful way to illustrate and even demonstrate the existence of God. Let me say one more thing. I, I took a class this summer with Dr. David Baggett, fantastic course on uh, on moral apologetics. And I didn't know this, but uh, the, the moral argument is so strong that guys like Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig have both admitted that it was the moral argument that is most powerful and had the greatest impact on, on college students and crowds that they spoke to, uh, to whom they spoke. It, they said that of all the arguments, it's by far the most powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you hear it, uh, you hear it, and, it, and it's, um, 
it's an argument that is uh, has such a firm base that there really is no way around it. It's kind of like our my pastor the other day he was talking about uh, you know having the boulder in the room in your living room. You kind of have to go around it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. if it's big enough, there's no way to get around it. You have to deal with that boulder first, and and I think this the moral argument um, is one of those boulders. Um, if you're trying to refute it, um, that's tough. It, it really is. It, it and there are a lot of people. You know, a lot of people try to go around and say that that they'll either argue against linking. They'll either agree with objective morals, but they won't link it with God. Or to God, or there are, there are others who will say that there are no objective morals. That's how they get around, or they try to get around it. But I think right. you know, at face value, if if you look at it and you examine the way things are, I think it. I think the moral argument's a slam dunk, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and, and you know, here's the other thing: is you got to be honest. You got to be honest to yourself. You got to be honest to those that are around you. And and when you're actually trying to refute a. Uh, the moral argument. I, I truly, truly think that um, as they get into trying to refute it, um, they come up with you know a social contra- contract. They come up with you know all these all these other theories that it's just a it's something that um, is in us that uh, it's the good that's propagated uh, the the culture and so on and so forth. Well, not in all cultures. Not in all cultures has it propagated because of goodness. Um, there's cultures out there that are pure evil, and they've propagated, you know. And yeah. so to, to use that as a, as a base for their argument, I think there's a lot of holes in that. And I agree. I think I think what, but one of the things I've noticed with with what a lot of people will do is they'll. Uh, They'll, they'll go to some type of emotivism or make it about emotions or they'll make it uh, relativism where everything's relative. But the problem with those arguments is that it becomes self-refuting uh, yeah. or, or either ends into a circular type of argument. So it really logically, it, it fails to cohere. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brian, this has been a, this has been a good one. Um, you know, I, I really want to kind of just stress and, and uh, kind of touch back on the point of just pray for your pastors. Um, pray for those that are higher up in in, uh, in our church organizations, in our colleges, and, and those things. Um, may the hand of God be on them because uh, we, need them, we need them to guide us, to give us wisdom. To They're, they're a lot further ahead in some of this stuff, um, you know, in knowledge. And uh, we need them to be strong and solid, so we have somewhere to follow. And, and I, can I just to add to that, Curtis? I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think really right now, in addition to that, I think we as a people of God really need to be uplifting one another in prayer because we we are facing some of the most tumultuous times that I've certainly ever seen in my life, and I know I've heard many who are much older than I am have said the same thing in their lives, that they've never seen anything like this. And I think that it's time for us as a people of God to really uplift one another and and pray God's protection over His people amid all the the chaos and uncertainty we're facing. Right. Yeah, and Scripture tells us that if we as, as as a people, as His people, 
will turn and humble ourselves and pray that he will hear us. He will hear us from heaven. And that's powerful. And you know, Curtis, if you don't mind, I mean, maybe maybe it'd be a good idea if if you would like to close the podcast with a prayer over yeah. God's people. Yeah. Father, we come here as humbled servants, Lord, asking that you open the ears and the eyes and the hearts of the people, your people, people that have claimed Jesus as Lord, that have said yes, Lord, that there would be a great stirring in their hearts. They would find things like the Bellator Christie podcast, or they'd find things like uh, Stand a Reason. They'd find these things to help strengthen their faith, help strengthen their, their, their knowledge, give them the depth in, the, in that, in, in that, that they can find you, find the, find the words that they need to find as they go through these troubled times. And Lord, now is when we ask that you build the faith deeper for every one of your believers, every one that has called you, Lord. And Lord, we understand that right now, uh, it seems like we're going through a refiner's fire with, with some of our uh, pastors and our uh, leaders in, in some of the colleges and, and even in politics. And Lord, we just ask that you remember your people. Remember us as we humble ourselves to you, that we pray and we lift up. We lift up one another. We hold tight, hold fast. And that, and that lifting up is, is shown by an outworking of, of love for one another, of, of a care and a desire that no matter which denomination we come from, we see and we start understanding that we fall under the tenets that you died on the cross to save us, to redeem us, call us your own. And Lord, we ask that you just fill us with that faith, fill us with that hope that we as believers across the world can rise up in understanding and defend you but also love on one another when we need it most. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, my friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christi Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast and BellatorChristi.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.
Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christie Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.